I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a double header. First up, we're going to be discussing an issue important to free speech, an always hot topic here in the United States. There are some states putting laws on the books, or attempting to put laws on the books, that force companies to make a pledge that they would not support the boycotting of Israel. Alan Leverett and the Arkansas Times were asked to sign one such pledge, and refused. Not because the Arkansas Times supports the boycotting of Israel, or what's known as the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, but rather on free speech grounds. In fact, Leverett and the Arkansas Times don't take any stance on issues related to Israel, Palestine, or the Middle East. They're a publication focused on local issues of significance to Arkansas. Since denying to sign this pledge, the Arkansas Times has suffered ad revenue losses, and the case has gone to court, with the Arkansas Times being supported by the ACLU. Alan Leverett joins us on this edition of the program to discuss this story. Later on in the show, we'll hear from the Center for International Policies, William Hartung, about how U.S. arms sales enable Saudi Arabia's blockade and bombing of Yemen. A rather pertinent issue given that President Biden, who previously pledged to end support for Saudi Arabia's offensive operations in Yemen, has now signed off on a $650 million ear-to-ear missiles sale to Saudi Arabia. As of this episode, there is an attempt in Congress to block said sale. We'll be discussing all of that and much more with William Hartung later on in the program. But first, Alan Leverett of the Arkansas Times on anti-boycott laws and free speech. Hey, Parallax News listeners, before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slamdance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist, Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel, or at youtube.com 
slash slam dance. Check it out, folks. Welcome to Parallax Views, Alan Leverett of the Arkansas Times, and also the author of an op-ed that caught my eye and the eye of many others in the New York Times, entitled, We're a Small Arkansas Newspaper, Why is the State Making Us Sign a Pledge About Israel? That's from November 22nd, 2021. Uh, before we get into that op-ed, could you tell me a little bit about the Arkansas <clears throat> Times? Because I don't think uh, Israel is really uh, something that the Arkansas Times uh, deals with a lot. No, we're, we're an intensely local publication. We're actually, we, we were a weekly newspaper for years, and now we're, we've switched over as a city magazine, which has been a real good move for us. But we're a left-of-center uh magazine about Arkansas. We do everything from covering Medicaid expansion and trying to protect it from our Republican legislators uh, to uh, recommending some of the best barbecue in America. So it's we're interested in politics, we're interested in culture, we're interested in music, uh, history. It's a general interest magazine for uh, well-educated Arkansans. So then what is all this about uh, signing a pledge to Israel and being required to by the state. So you may wonder why you see these bills suddenly appear in states and they'll like all of a sudden you'll see 20 states will be talking about transgender children and, and how we need to restrict uh, uh, trans, transgender boys from competing in, in children's sports or transgender bathroom, bathroom bills. You know, you, we saw that a few years ago. All of this comes from the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is an association of Republican legislators uh, and it's funded by the Cook brothers. And they basically create what they call model bills. And the model bills, are basically all you gotta do is just fill in the blank. They put their, a blank there for your state's name and all these legislators, they have an annual meeting in a very posh resort generally. Alec picks up all of the expenses and it's closed door. And uh, then they come back and suddenly you'll see like we now have 33 states in the United States that have uh, uh, these anti-boycott bills uh, basically telling their citizens that if they boycott Israel, they cannot uh, do business with their own state when they pay their taxes. <laughs> So when did this first come <clears throat> under your radar? And then it's 2018. And what we have in Arkansas, this is not true elsewhere, because like this, we have these laws in California. We have a, uh, we have a uh, governor's uh, uh, edict in New York. But in Arkansas and many southern states, this, this is driven by evangelical conservative Christians. Um, so you wonder sometimes why right-wing Christians, uh, such as Mike Huckabee, our former governor, and others are so vehement in their support for the state of Israel. And it goes back to the idea in, 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 the, um, in the evangelical readings of scripture, uh, 
we cannot have the second coming of Christ. We cannot have Armageddon and the end of the world until Israel regains its borders <clears throat> that it had during the time of King David and Solomon. And so by supporting Israel, by supporting the reestablishment of the uh, uh, of the capital in Jerusalem, uh, in the minds of these evangelical conservatives, they are hastening the day that basically we'll have Armageddon, we'll have the second coming of Christ, and we'll have the end of the world. And when that happens, uh, all non-Christians will go to hell, including the residents of Israel. So it's an odd, it's an odd uh, arrangement, odd, odd relationship. But in the documentary Boycott uh, that recently uh, was produced and came out, was at the New York uh, Documentary Film Festival, um, Senator Bart Hester, who was our majority Republican uh, Senate, Senate uh, leader, he explained all this. And he said that every member of the Arkansas legislature was a believer in Jesus Christ and over half were evangelical Christians. And he explained that this is what had to happen before the end of the world could take place. And so that's why we have that law. That's it. Wow. And then when did you decide, you know, I I'm going to take a, or the Arkansas Times is going to take a stance and say, no, we're not, we're not signing this pledge. And well, let, let's start with that. So, you know, you may have heard that the publishing business is terrible these days. Uh, Google and uh, Facebook have gobbled up 70% of the advertising it used to go to local newspapers, magazines and such. So this was not a, this was not a uh, fight that we were looking for. And so we just sort of ducked our heads uh, for about a year and we just, when we started getting these notices coming across my desk saying, you know, we just got a, we got a night from the health department or from UAMS and we need to sign this pledge under the new law. Well, I looked at this, and I thought there's no way this can be enforced. That The state of Arkansas has thousands and thousands of transactions every week. And how are they going to be able to keep track of which, which drywall hanger has signed his pledge to not boycott Israel. And, uh, and so we just ignored these and we were able to continue doing business. And then there was one, one purchasing manager at the university and he just would not let go. And uh, he finally withheld the purchase orders from the marketing department and wouldn't let them advertise. They've been advertising with us for decades. We're a 47 year old uh, magazine. And um, so when they did that, um, you know, we, it, we can't have the state of Arkansas dictating a political position, even if it's an irrelevant political position, which it certainly is in, in our case. Um, but we don't take advertising in return for taking political positions. And by agreeing not to boycott Israel, as irrelevant as that is, that's exactly what they're insisting on. And so we refuse to do it. And we had to sue the state. And when I say that this, this is so irrelevant, but you got to look at where this is going. <clears throat> so the, the law in Texas, same law, was recently overturned. Uh, it's been overturned in Arizona. It's been overturned in Kansas, been overturned in Texas. Only the Arkansas law has not been overturned, unfortunately. But in Texas, in September 1, they passed two more laws. This one says you cannot do business with the state of Texas if you boycott the firearms industry. And then, and, and, and not only the firearms industry, but 
It's trade association. Now, what that means is the NRA, that's the trade association for the firearms industry. So let's say that your uh, Mother's Demand Action, which is a, a, a gun, gun safety, gun control uh, uh, organization. Well, I can guarantee you they're boycotting the NRA. They don't want any part of the NRA. And does that mean that if you're a member of Mother's Demand Action that you can't be a school teacher in the state of Texas? It strikes me that way. Then they passed another law. And this one says, if you boycott the fossil fuels industry. So now we're talking about climate change. So if you're, if you're gonna boycott, uh, if you're say you're, you're in favor of renewable energies, energy and you're gonna somehow or another boycott the, the fossil fuel industry, you can't work for the state of Texas. They fired a, a speech pathologist in, in, in Texas uh, because she would not sign this, this uh, pledge not to support, not, not to uh, boycott uh, Israel. And she happened to be a, a Palestinian American, had family still in the West Bank, and she wasn't going to take this, she wasn't going to sign this. So she refused to sign it. She got fired, missed a year's worth of her salary, and finally got it overturned with the help of the ACLU. I guess what's shocking to me about that in particular is, uh, you know, first off, we, we obviously have these groups like the aforementioned Alec and a lot of uh, the right in America complaining about free speech. And yet, to me, this is, you know, a big free speech issue. And I don't hear them talking about it. Uh, I don't hear a lot of people talking about it, to be honest. Well, you know, one thing and, and makes us a little different than the other plaintiffs is that we're not boycotting Israel. We're not mad at anybody. You know, we just want to be left alone. Uh, we want the government to stay out of our business not try to dictate our political positions. And we just want a good letting alone. That's all we're asking for. But they're insisting, just like so many of the social conservatives these days, they want to get into your business. They want to get into your bedroom. They want to, they want to get into your life and your personal habits. And we're not having it. And so, uh, you know, that's where we are. And then when it comes to these different uh, anti-boycotting laws, Mm -hmm. I mean, couldn't this eventually come back to, you know, bite even mm -hmm. more conservative uh, mm -hmm. minded people in the butt? Because I, I imagine, you know, a liberal state could say, well, you have to Absolutely. sign a pledge uh, not, not, to boycott to, not, Planned not to boycott Planned Parenthood. There you go. I mean, yeah, no, it, it cuts both ways. I mean, if you if you. As a conservative, and, and, and by the way, I'm a former conservative. I, I was a conservative political activist when I was a, a college student. And my journey has taken place over many, many years uh, where I now I'm, I'm left of center. But, but yeah, if you surrender, if you surrender the, the protections and the rights of Americans as embodied in the Bill of Rights for a short-term gain, partisan gain, then you are leaving yourself open when the when the winds change or you go to another part of the country, those rights can also disappear for people who think the way you do. And I guarantee you they will. Um, I guarantee you they will. So it's a it's a they're on a fool's errand if that's what they're doing. And uh, and we've had we've had we've had great support. The, the, the rabbi here in Little Rock, he's, he's head of the largest synagogue in the state of Arkansas. He's been very, very supportive of us. And he, under, I mean, he absolutely opposes any boycotts of Israel, but he also understands 
how important the First Amendment and freedom of speech uh, and freedom of religion is to the Jewish community. So he's been very, very supportive and very critical. And when, uh, when Senator Bart Hester, when this was pointed out to Senator Bart Hester in the, uh, in the documentary Boycott, uh, he says, well, we don't need to listen to the local Jews. And that's what he said. So, you know. Uh, well, it sounds like, it sounds like the, it sounds like a very strange alliance when it comes to these Christian evangelicals and, um, you know, Jewish supporters of Israel, because it sounds like to me, from what I understand, evangelicals are supporting this because, you know, uh, you know, hurry up and end the world. And so all the Jews can go to hell and, and all the non-Christians. I mean, it is just, it is a fairy tale, but one that is being acted out in policy. And, and that's what's so dangerous and, and uh, unfortunate about this. This is uh, the intellectual, the intellectual firepower just is not there in my opinion, but you know, I'm not, I'm not in Congress and I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I'm not in the legislature. Now, this isn't just affecting uh, states like Arkansas either. There's also, I think, anti-BDS laws, uh, even in places like New York, I think. Yeah, yeah. Kumo, Kumo uh, uh, he said, if you're going to boycott Israel, New York's going to boycott you. Uh, we had the same law in, in California. And I think, you know, we have people, we have so many of us, uh, we, you know, we've always respected Israel. It's a democratic, uh, trying hard to be a democratic country and a, and a part of the world that doesn't really uh, appreciate democracy. And so we have a, almost a knee-jerk reaction to support Israel and to protect Israel. But, you know, you've got to realize that Israel is a nation state and, and it is susceptible to the same foibles and, and problems and, and transgressions of any nation state. And when you say that you cannot boycott Israel, there's no exceptions there. You can't, you know, it's basically, it's unconditional. You're going to support Israel or you're not going to do business with Arkansas. I mean, with, yeah, with, with the state of Arkansas. And, you know, no, no country deserves that kind of pass. And um, so, you know, but again, we're not boycotting Israel. We're just trying to be left alone and, and, and focus on Arkansas without undue interference from the state. Yeah, I just want to go back to that one more time because I, I think that's the key issue here is this is a free speech issue. And anyone that wants to keep saying or bringing it back to, oh, do you support Israel or do you not support Israel? It's not about that. And it never has been. These anti-boycotting laws are just, it, it, it goes against the First Amendment. Yeah, that, that, that's it. And uh, and we've been accused of anti-Semitism. I've been accused of anti-Semitism and everything. And I'm sorry, you know, I just don't buy that. And uh, we do not allow the state of Arkansas to dictate political positions for or against Israel or any other position. Uh, mom and apple pie, it's none of their business. You know, we'll leave that, we'll, we'll leave that to the editors. If you could, before we wrap up, uh, could you just give my listeners an idea of the uh, ramifications this has had for the Arkansas Times? Well, it's made a bad situation worse. I mean, you know, it's very, very, it's a very, very difficult advertising environment. Um, we, 
we thought this would be over pretty quick. When uh, the ACLU joined us and agreed to represent us, we thought we would win pretty quickly, and we we actually lost in um, in in the uh, federal district court here in Little Rock. The state argued that boycott, a boycott is an economic action. Uh, and therefore, as an economic action, can be regulated by the state. And we maintain that boycotts going back to the Boston Tea Party are essentially um, uh, political speech by, by other means. And just like the Montgomery bus boycott, it was, a, it was not just people wanting to save money on their bus fare. It was a political, uh, it was a political activity. Um, during the civil rights period in the 60s in Port Gibson, Mississippi, NAACP organized a boycott of white businesses because they wouldn't hire black employees. And the merchants sued the NAACP, NAACP and they won in the, before the Mississippi Supreme Court, but they, the US Supreme Court was unanimous in finding that uh, the boycott was political speech and therefore protected by the First Amendment. And so we, we went to the uh, Eighth Circuit and we won before a three-judge panel, but then the, the um, uh, state appealed and said, we want, to be, we want to be heard by the full Eighth Circuit. That happened. And based on, it's a very conservative court and based on some of the questioning, we're not real optimistic. We're not real sure about how it's gonna turn out. We should know sometime after the first of the year. But no, it's cost us a lot of money. So I know you've talked about this in other interviews, but uh, you mentioned the Boston Tea Party. Uh, <clears throat> what has been the reaction to that being brought up in this uh, debate? I, I think it was actually brought up in the case. Well, it was brought up, the, our ACLU lawyer brought it up in, uh, in, for the Eighth Circuit. And he said, you know, this is a country whose founding mythology is built around the boycott of tea. And one of the judges, one of the federal judges said, well, he wasn't sure if today the Boston Tea Party would be considered constitutional. I think that's a, I think that's a chilling note to end on. I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Is there any way that my listeners um, can lend their support um, or anything thinking, else that you'd like to say? Uh, we have, you know, in, in the face of this, we've, we sat down and we did some hail marys and said so we got to we got to reinvent our business model because it's broken and this is making it the fact that we can't get state advertising is is really broken so we have a very very aggressive uh large website we have between 400,000 and 700,000 unique devices every month uh, depending on what's going on in the state and it's a very progressive, uh, the point of view is Max Brantley, our, our senior editor, is a very progressive point of view and very liberal. And so we have now almost 3,000 subscribers that pay $110 a year uh, to have full access to the ArkansasTimes.com website. And that has meant $300,000 in money that wasn't there two years ago. So that is what has has buffered us and why we're still in business. So if any of your readers want to subscribe to the ArkansasTimes.com, we would welcome that. And it, you just wouldn't believe how much it helps uh, pay the bills around here. And I appreciate you asking. I want to thank you again, Alan Leverett of the Arkansas Times. Okay, thank you.
Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alan Leverett. I thank him very much for taking time out of his schedule to speak with me briefly about anti-boycott laws and free speech and how the story of the Arkansas Times and its run-in with anti-boycott laws is only one part of a bigger story and struggle that we face going forward in the debates that continue to rage about freedom of speech in the United States of America. Before we get to our next guest, I'd like to let you know about one of our sponsors and the service they provide. Alexander Yu provides holistic therapy to California residents. His approach is welcoming and all-embracing, regardless of your personal beliefs or spiritual orientation. Yu specializes in grief, trauma, and PTSD therapy. He can also provide assistance to those seeking marriage or relationship counseling, and can offer a helping hand when it comes to LGBTIQ and gender-related issues. If any of that fits the therapeutic needs that you need met, well, consider contacting Alexander Yu at therapy at alexanderyoo.com or by calling or texting at 323-834-9828. Alexander Yu, Holistic Therapy, California License Number 102886. Next up, we'll be speaking with William Hartung of the Center for International Policy about his recent report, Arming Repression, U.S. Military Support for Saudi Arabia, from Trump to Biden. And of course, we'll also discuss the $650 million deal to Saudi Arabia that President Biden recently signed off on and that Congress is attempting to block. Additionally, William and I will also discuss issues like the foreign policy establishment in D.C., or what we here at Parallax Views have often referred to as the D.C. Blob, the arms race with China, and much, much more. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with William Hartung of the Center for International Policy. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been meaning to have on for some time now, uh, someone whose work I very, very much respect, William Hartung of the Center for International Policy. Uh, I believe you are the director of the Arms and Security Program there, also the author of Profits of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex and a number of other books, and also recently wrote a really great report for the Center for International Policy entitled Arming Repression, U.S. Military Support for Saudi Arabia from Trump to Biden. How are you doing today, William? Good, good. Glad for having me. Thank you. So I initially got in contact with you because of a piece you wrote in Forbes uh, entitled, The Biden Administration's Missile Sale to Saudi Arabia 
is offensive and must be stopped. Uh, for people that are unfamiliar with what we're going to be talking about, namely uh, the arms sales to Saudi Arabia during the war on Yemen, uh, could you fill them in? What, what is the sort of brief outline of the war that has been going on uh, in Yemen? Well, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the current de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, launched the war in March 2015, uh, arguing that he needed to have a sympathetic government on their borders and that the Houthi opposition there, which had overthrown the uh, Saudi Bet government, was a tool of Iran. Uh, and he assured his allies and his advisors that this would be a short war, perhaps as short as six weeks. Uh, and here we are more than six years later, and the war has been devastating for the people of Yemen. More than uh, a, what, more than a quarter of a million dead, right? Yes, according to the United Nations. Uh, many of them were from indirect causes, from diseases, from hunger, from the effects of the blockade that the Saudis have imposed on Yemen, uh, bombing of water treatment plants, which have made disease much more common, including things like cholera, uh, bombing of hospitals, so the whole healthcare system, the whole food system, the whole ability basically for people to have basic means of survival has been threatened by the war. Uh, and then as well, uh, bombings of civilian targets, uh, not just hospitals, but funerals, a school bus, civilian marketplaces, uh, a whole range of uh, uh, factories. So basically it's it's been a war of aggression that has put uh, Yemen in the position of um, having what the UN called the worst humanitarian catastrophe in the world right now, right alongside what has happened in Syria. Just to drive that point home, uh, could you talk about the level of food insecurity that is going on in Yemen? Yes. Well, uh, about 80% of the population needs some form of humanitarian aid. Uh, and the head of the World Food Program back in March said as many as 400,000 children could die from hunger uh, if there wasn't a change in the ability to get life-saving supplies into Yemen. So we've lost many of those children already, uh, and the blockade continues. And could you speak to the issue of how the U.S. has figured into supporting Saudi Arabia in this war on Yemen? Well, it goes back to the Obama administration. And of course, uh, Joe Biden was the vice president at that time, so he had a role in this. Uh, and the theory was twofold. One was they wanted to show support for the Saudis at the time that they were also negotiating the Iran nuclear deal, which Saudi Arabia opposed. And so they sort of made this bargain with the devil saying, well, you know, we're still going to support your security even as we make this deal. And that was one of the reasons they supported the war, basically by providing uh, targeting assistance, refueling aircraft, and supplying a lot of the weapons that were being used, the, the aircraft and the bombs and so forth. Um, they also viewed it as a way to sort of push back Iranian influence, and they believed Mohammed bin Salman when he said it would be a short war. So they they viewed it in that kind of Washington mindset, which is so uh, maddening, that, that this would be kind of a modest commitment in favor of an ally, but of course, it's now caused immense civilian harm to the people of Yemen. 
And then what happens with Trump's involvement with this whole sordid affair? Well, by the time of the end of the Obama administration, there was uh, internal debate about whether to continue support for the Saudis in the war. And there was a lot of pressure from activist groups and from members of Congress to cut off arms. So very late in his term, Obama uh, suspended the sale of precision-guided bombs to the Saudis uh, because of their uh, bombing of civilians. And this caused great uproar by the Saudi regime. It wasn't the end of U.S. support entirely, but it was sort of the strongest signal there had been that the U.S. might pull back. <clears throat> then Trump came in and he embraced the Saudi regime enthusiastically. His first foreign trip was to Saudi Arabia. He concluded what he called a $110 billion arms deal while he was there which was actually much less, but this was Trump. And of course, he exaggerated. Uh, but nonetheless, one of the first things he did was reverse the suspension of the bomb sale that Obama had done. Uh, and throughout his administration, he basically kept the weapons flowing, especially the bombs that had been used in the war. And he uh, vetoed uh, congressional efforts to stop that. He um, spoke out in favor of Saudi Arabia, even after the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington-based Saudi journalist and dissident. And he, um, you know, he basically cited the reason to keep the arms flowing because it was good business for U.S. weapons manufacturers like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. So he was completely in the Saudi camp and he viewed it as a domestic political strength for him to be able to point to the jobs created by U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia as part of his kind of make America great, I'm a wonderful deal maker, uh, you know, warped uh, worldview. Now, what's interesting is that President Biden pledged in the past to treat Saudi Arabia as a, you know, a pariah, especially because there's been so much pressure now, I, I think, in holding Saudi Arabia accountable for human rights violations. Uh, and yet we have uh, this decision to sell $650 million in air-to-air -air missiles and related equipment to Saudi Arabia. How did this come about and what is the backlash against it then? Well, when Biden came in, you know, based on his statement in the campaign that Saudi Arabia was a pariah state, he gave his first foreign policy speech and he said the U.S. would stop support for offensive operations in Yemen and relevant arms sales. Uh, but the hitch there was this notion of offensive operations, arms sales for offensive purposes. What did that really mean? Did it mean a cutoff of all arms sales? What kind of arms sales would be allowed? And some members of Congress uh, wrote a letter asking for clarification with 13 very specific questions. And the administration basically blew them off. They didn't answer those questions. Um, and they kind of embraced the Saudis this notion that on the one hand, we're not going to support the war and we have a special envoy to try to stop the war, but we'll still provide defensive equipment to protect from strikes over the border by the, by the Houthi. So they, uh, the first thing they did was uh, a $500 million maintenance contract for Saudi attack helicopters. And that's separate about, from this $650 yes. million uh, in air-to-air -air missiles deal. Okay, go on. Exactly. And... That was clearly offensive because it kept 
these attack helicopters flying uh, helicopters that were used in the Yemen war. Uh, then came the missile deal. And these are air to air missiles. So they're not used to bomb uh, targets on the ground. However, because there's an air blockade uh, against the, especially the main airport in Sana'a in Yemen, um, basically the Saudi Air Force is threatening to shoot down any plane that they don't say is allowed to land there. They've bombed the runways, uh, they've kept people from leaving the country for medical treatment. Um, Norwegian Refugee Council estimated 32,000 people have died because they couldn't leave for specialized medical care. Um, and so these missiles are very pertinent to enforcing that blockade, as well as being a uh, kind of a sign of support. Uh, you know, from that earlier pariah statement to that we're not going to sell various kinds of weapons to these last two deals, uh, there's been a shift from the rhetoric of, you know, we're going to have a different policy towards Saudi Arabia uh, to supporting the regime, despite the fact that they're still imposing the blockade, they're still bombing targets in Yemen, uh, they still have immense internal human rights abuses, they're still harassing Saudi dissidents overseas. Um, so there hasn't been a change in the regime, but there's been a change in the Biden policy from what he stated uh, to what's happened in the last few months. Would any of this be possible? And I, I know the answer to this already, but I, I really want you to drive this home for my listeners. Is any of this possible without the U.S. support of Saudi Arabia? Well, because the Saudi military is so dependent on the U.S., um, you know, it wouldn't really be possible to wage this war without U.S. support. So, for example, about two-thirds of their air force, their combat planes that do the bombing, are of U.S. origin. Uh, F-15s, uh, the most recent batch sold uh, under the Obama administration. Uh, their stockpiles of bombs come primarily from the United States. Uh, they have four dozen attack helicopters supplied by the United States, uh, 2,300 armored vehicles. All of these need significant technical support, uh, which has to come from U.S. personnel or U.S. contractors and as Bruce Rydell at the Brookings Institution has said, he's a former CIA, uh, you know, uh, operative. Um, he said, you know, that you could ground their air force almost overnight if the U.S. stopped supplying maintenance and spare parts. So the bombing of the uh, Biden administration has huge leverage over the Saudis if it chose to use it. But so far, they've not done that. I just want to quote that line from the report, the arming repression report that you wrote. Uh, it's hard to overstate the degree to which the Saudi military relies on U.S. arms and related support. Uh, that really stood out to me. And I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about the attempts to push back against all this uh, support and against the uh, $650 million air-to-air uh, -air missile deal? Yes. Well, there's been a, a strong coalition um, with a lot of uh, leadership from the many diaspora groups, like the Many Action Coalition and uh, the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation, uh, groups like Women Without War, Friends Committee on National Legislation, uh, a whole array of human rights, humanitarian aid, uh, peace and arms control groups that uh, came together early after the war started in 2015 
started pressing Congress. And people like Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, Rand Paul of Kentucky, Bernie Sanders, and the House side, uh, Rokana of California, brought various measures to try to block U.S. military support. Uh, so this is bipartisan, too. That's that's pretty important to note. You know, you have Rand Paul on one end and then people like Bernie Sanders uh, on the other hand, and now people like uh, Ilhan Omar as well. Yes, exactly. And Mike Lee of Utah has been very strong, and he's essentially kind of a Tea Partier, although that term's got out of favor because things have gotten even worse in some ways. But yeah, so there's a bipartisan effort, and they passed a war powers resolution in both houses, which Trump vetoed. Uh, they passed uh, resolutions to block one of the bomb sales, which Trump again vetoed. Uh, Rokana had a resolution that passed in this year's National Defense Authorization Act that would cut off all arms sales and spare parts and maintenance support for the Saudi military. Uh, Sanders, Lee, and Paul tried to get a similar amendment into the Senate version of the National Defense Authorization Act, but they're not taking any amendments. They haven't passed the bill. So there's going to be some sort of discussion between the House and Senate whether the Kana provision survives. So that, that's sort of the, you know, one of the key kind of levers uh, that advocates have. And the other is uh, trying to stop this uh, $650 million arms sale. Now, how could this play out differently? Like if 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 you were advising President Biden, what do you think needs to be done? How can we leverage power when it comes to this and, and with our relationship to Saudi Arabia and what is going on in Yemen? Well, I think they need to basically say, we're not going to give you arms and support, uh, maintenance, spare parts. None of the arms in the pipeline are going to go forward until you lift the air and sea blockade. And we see that you're engaged in the process of um, an inclusive peace agreement and ceasefire for Yemen. Um, so I think that would be sort of the way to go. And, and then the question would be, um, if that could be accomplished, what would be the relationship after that with Saudi Arabia? And I think that should be up for debate. You know, I don't think it should be the way it was before this war started, where basically the U.S. agreed to sell Saudi Arabia arms. Saudi Arabia agreed to sort of coordinate oil policies with the United States. And then there was a, basically a commitment, although not written in paper, but a commitment to defend that repressive regime. So I think all that has to be reconsidered. But I think the first thing is to try to use the leverage to end the blockade and the war. When it comes down to it, what do you think the biggest factor is in this continued sort of, you know, alliance with Saudi Arabia? What's contributing to this? Is it just uh, what's been called by uh, people like Andrew Basevich at the Quincy Institute, uh, the, the DC foreign policy blob? And a sort of um, atrophied sort of way of thinking that refuses to sort of change when it comes to how we do foreign policy. Is that it? Is it that there's too much money to be made uh, from what's been called the military industrial complex? Or uh, does it have to do with oil? What What are the biggest factors involved in this uh, continued sort of support of Saudi Arabia at all, seemingly all times? I think a lot of it is the outmoded views of the foreign policy establishment. Uh, the oil connection, the U.S. doesn't really depend on the Saudis for oil the way it used to. The arms connection, there's many fewer jobs uh, in the U.S. arms industry related to Saudi sales and some of the Donald Trump claimed. So if you were going to take kind of just a harsh 
realist look at what you know what's in it for the United States. There's very little left. Uh, however, there is, of course, the specter of Iran, and they try to paint the Houthi opposition in Yemen as sort of a proxy of Iran, which is not the case. Uh, they've got their own agenda. Uh, they've been fighting various different Yemeni um, governments for years over kind of corruption and political inclusion and uh, you know economic deprivation and so forth. So they have their own kind of reasons they're fighting. Iran has come in with some support, uh, you know, once the war started, but it's far less than the support the U.S. is providing to the Saudi side. So, um, you know, so I, th I think this this kind of mindset it's sort of stuck in the Cold War and kind of old thinking about the U.S. kind of using the military as leverage in the Middle East to get what it wants. And of course, after Iraq and Afghanistan, you would think they would want to think again about that policy. Uh, but a lot of them have not. They've just kind of, you know, tweaked it a little bit. And they've said, well, we won't put as many boots on the ground there, but they still want what they call over the horizon capabilities, which is basically the ability to do uh, bomb and drone strikes from a distance. Uh, a lot of them still want the bases that they have in the Middle East. So they'll they'll talk about kind of scaling back a bit, partly in connection with their the desire to beef up uh, operations against China. Uh, but so far, we haven't seen much of that. In fact, the Pentagon did what they call the Global Force Posture Review, which was, you know, how many bases, how many troops overseas, where should they be located? And, uh, you know, what was released from it publicly made it indicate that it was really very modest adjustments to the current U.S. global, uh, you know, footprint, which includes 750 to 800 overseas military bases. Well. You know, the next largest country uh, with bases has about three. So the role of the U.S. as kind of global enforcer, global policeman, militarized foreign policy that puts, you know, kind of the U.S. military at the forefront of how the U.S. engages with the world. Uh, none of that has been significantly rolled back, unfortunately. What would you say to the the people who think that because I've had a lot of guests on that are a bit more optimistic now, people like Juan Cole saying that it seems like there is a growing consensus among the Washingtonians that, you know, maybe we should start leaving the Middle East alone. But you're saying that you sound like you're not as optimistic about that, that it seems like we're going to be staying there. Well, I think there's there's a strong current of, of opinion along the lines of what Juan Cole uh, was talking about. And there's been a lag in policy. so. Um, I think we could get out. I think there has to be more public pressure, partly to strengthen those voices inside the establishment or, you know, they're slugging it out with the neocons, with the kind of more traditionalist policy analysts, uh, with the military industrial complex, uh, you know, with the services. So uh, there's a lot of power on the other side, but I do think we're at a, uh, you know, a historic moment. Uh, partly because of the failure of the wars, uh, partly because people are coming to understand that there's other things that are bigger threats to their lives, like climate change and the pandemic, racial economic injustice, the threat to our own democracy uh, from January 6th and all that that implies. So I think, you know, I think the public's coming around. I think there's, there's voices in Washington and especially on something like Saudi and Yemen, uh, there's a lot more critics than there used to be, including uh, former members of the Obama administration 
who've kind of rethought the position, admitted that they made a mistake, uh, you know, back in the war initially. So uh, in that sense, that there's there's hope. I just think, you know, in the first, you know, nine months of this administration or so, it it hasn't, we haven't seen movement in the right direction yet. And if you could, could you reiterate, I know we were talking about the, the missiles, uh, but also we, I, I feel like people forget that, you know, the, the use of these U.S. arms, they're not just, they're being used to enforce the naval blockade. And could you just, from the sake of my listeners, maybe detail the effect that is having? Because I think the, the blockade is just a really horrifying thing and, and the effects of it are terrifying to me. Yes, well, they, they have, you know, uh, air superiority. I mean, the Houthis don't have an air force. They have some drones, but so they can threaten to bomb ships, you know, that are uh, don't abide by their blockade. <clears throat> they can use their navy uh, to intercept ships. Um, they can block unloading of ships at the port. Um, you know, and they, they've got uh, through the UAE uh, hiring of militias that also, uh, you know, fight the Houthis and are involved in some of this um, obstruction of aid. So pretty much every element of what the United States sells to the Saudis can be used to enforce either the naval or the air blockade. And I think that's that's kind of a missing piece of what a lot of members of Congress are saying. They're saying, well, this sale is different, you know, because it's, it's defensive weapons. But, you know, the, the definition of what's defensive really has to do with how the weapons are going to be used. And if they're going to be used to enforce the blockade, the blockade's an act of war. So before we close out here, where do you see the foreign policy of the United States headed, not just in the Middle East, but more generally? Because the work you do at the Center for International Policy and the work people like uh, the aforementioned Andrew Basevich do at the Quincy Institute, I'm really rooting for you guys because to me, I think I think the U.S. in a lot of ways has forgotten that we can use this sort of diplomatic toolbox uh, when it comes to international relations. I think that we rely too often on the sort of militarized hand, so to speak. Do you think there's a possibility that, you know, that can change going forward, whether it's short or long term? And where's the the way forward for sort of getting out of this really militarized system that doesn't necessarily rely enough on diplomacy, especially when we need diplomacy to deal with climate change? Well, I think it's it's probably a medium to long-term struggle. And I think the public's going to play an important role. You know, the Ronald Reagan Institute uh, did a poll recently and they asked people, you know, what's the biggest threat that you see on the horizon? And, um, you know, military threats in China and so forth were pretty low on the list. And things like climate and the pandemics and even domestic violence within the country uh, were you know, higher on their lists of concerns. Uh, there's also been polls showing that, you know, twice as many people want to reduce the Pentagon budget as want to increase it. There was a poll by the uh, Eurasia Group Foundation to that effect. But I think, you know, people need to feel like their voices matter. And I think that's one of the gaps we have now is that a lot of people feel like Congress isn't going to budge, that they're under sway of special interests. And 
in fact, you can do quite a bit with a mobilized constituency to, to turn some of these folks around, not to mention, uh, you know, people who believe in a different foreign policy can uh, get elected to Congress. So I think uh, the tipping point's not here yet, but I, I think there's an opening that we haven't had, you know, probably since the end of the Cold War to try to, you know, set off in a new direction. Last thing here, because I know you've talked about it before. Uh, what do you think of the current, you know, rumblings about, you know, what's been called the new Cold War or uh, Cold War 2.0 happening between the U.S. and uh, China and, and Russia on the other end of that? Um, and should we be concerned about things like, um, you know, a, a nuclear arms race in the future? Because I, I feel like, you know, we're not at the point yet where, you know, I'm going to, you know, go out into the streets and panic. But I think one false move in the current geopolitical situation could lead to catastrophic consequences. Yes. Uh, well, with respect to China, I think the arms race is, is on. Uh, I mean, the Pentagon's already got a plan to build a new generation of nuclear weapons at a cost of $1.5 trillion over the next three decades. So new land-based missiles, new submarine-based missiles, new bombers, new cruise missiles, new nuclear bombs. Uh, and they've also started putting missile defense systems close to China. So the U.S. has, uh, in terms of its active nuclear stockpile, about 13 times as many nuclear warheads as China does. So China now is starting to dig some holes that some people think will hold uh, new ballistic missiles, they will have significant numbers of uh, warheads, and that they'll, they'll come closer to the levels of spending in the United States, which then is just triggering the hawks in the U.S. to say, oh, therefore we need more. Uh, and all of these things lead to the, the possibility of miscalculation. Uh, you know, they're, now the, the big craze now is hypersonic missiles. Uh, which can go, you know, five times the speed of sound, uh, and have can have uh, deceptive flight path and so forth. And the more you have things like those or ICBMs, land-based ballistic missiles, where the president has a few minutes to make a decision whether he's under attack or not, he or she, and um, you know that that just means uh, such a short decision time that there could be a false alarm, there could be an accidental war. And the whole U.S. strategy is basically to have long-range strike to hit targets within China. And that alone is, is a provocative strategy that I think is a mistake. I mean, things like Taiwan, South China Sea, a lot of the economic issues, climate change, which the U.S. and China, you know, if they don't work together, we're not going to solve that problem. Um, those are all problems for diplomacy. They're not problems where you build more aircraft carriers and more nuclear weapons. So I think you know, the, the, a lot of the establishment in Washington is headed down exactly the wrong path with respect to how to deal with any challenge from China. Uh, and with Russia, you know, there are alternatives in the Ukraine. You know, there are diplomatic alternatives, which the U.S. has largely abandoned. There was a great piece by Anatole Levin of the Quincy Institute in The Nation, a front page article about diplomatic options for dealing with Ukraine, uh, rather than just you know, kind of counter threats, and we're going to pour more arms in, and we're going to have advisors there, uh, all of which would, you know, up the possibilities of, of some sort of conflict between the U.S. and Russia. Now, of course, China and Russia have many things to criticize. I, I think the intimidation of Ukraine, 
the treatment of the, the Uyghur, the Uyghurs in uh, China, uh, the crackdown in Hong Kong. Uh, but again, those aren't military problems. Those are diplomatic problems. If you if you ratchet up an arms race, you're not going to have any more leverage over those bad behaviors of Russia and China than you do now. In fact, they may use that as a uh, rationale to further crackdown, to point to the great enemy outside and therefore justify whatever they do internally or on their borders. So, uh, you know, they're not easy problems, but I'd say the last thing you want to do is launch a new arms race. And unfortunately, there's, uh, you know, too many folks in Washington who are kind of, although they don't use that rhetoric, their policies seem to be headed in that direction. Just uh, one last thing, because it, it also popped up into my mind when you mentioned uh, Anatole Levin. You know, when it comes to what I consider a real public backlash against the way we do foreign policy in the U.S., and I, I think it, it is a backlash that was caused by Iraq and Afghanistan, I think it's an interesting moment because you have elements on both sides of the political spectrum from progressives to people that are more on the conservative end of things coming together on a lot of these issues. And uh, in these really polarized times, how do we sort of thread the needle? Because people always ask me, how can we work with people we disagree with on, you know, a ton of issues when we agree on, you know, one single issue? Like, how do we sort of thread the needle between different political uh, ideologies or competing ideologies that may once in a while come together to agree on something? Well, I think there's there's room to do that, um, especially with, well, of course, with libertarians who are not interventionist, uh, but also there's a lot of elements of the Trump base who voted for him, partly because he, he bashed the Iraq war. He said he was going to bring the troops home. Uh, you know, he, he basically beat Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton over the head with their support for the war in Iraq which was a very rare thing for a Republican candidate to do. It was kind of outside of the mainstream, to put it mildly. So there are elements in the, in the Trump base who also want to retrench and have the U.S. not have this huge global military role. I think the problem of working together is in some cases, I mean, you know, some of the divisions are so deep uh, that with, with some elements of, of the right, it may be hard to make common cause because of things like January 6th. And just, you know, basic disagreements about reality. But that's not the entire Republican Party or that's not everybody who thinks of themselves as conservative. Um, so I think there is room for uh, kind of networks, you know, not necessarily coalitions, but, you know, all hands on deck on specific issues. And, and you know, and, and the movement to get uh, Biden to keep his pledge to get out of Afghanistan, there were both conservative and progressive veterans groups are working hand in hand. And they don't agree on a lot of other things, but they agreed on this, and they work together quite closely uh, with folks like the Quincy Institute to help make that happen. And I was just going to add to that. I think too, even with that foreign policy issue of, of you know, there's times where uh, certain conservatives and certain progressives can agree on foreign policy things. It's often for very different reasons, right? You know, I, I I'm not sure conservative non-interventionists and libertarian non-interventionists have the same reasons for supporting some of what progressives want with foreign policy, if that makes sense. And I, I just wanted to ask you, uh, what do you think about you know, the accusation that gets thrown at a lot of us who are trying to work on issues like this, that we're being uh, 
oh, you're, you're all just isolationists. Uh, how do we sort of combat that sort of mentality? Well, I mean, certainly progressives uh, are for a strong diplomatic effort, um, you know, for funding diplomacy. Uh, they're for using uh, economic development and other kind of incentives uh, to work with other countries. They're for building strong citizen movements for democracy that work together across borders. So unless you think that anything that's not military is not a form of interaction, then I think the isolationist, uh, you know, kind of label falls flat. Uh, now, there may be some on the right who don't believe in multilateral diplomacy, don't believe in, um, you know, um, uh, economic development aid and so forth. But even then, uh, you know, a lot of libertarians, for example, supported the Iran nuclear deal. So it's not a cut and dried thing. Uh, so I, I think more often than not, the isolationist label is used uh, kind of as a smear to say, well, you're not serious. Uh, and I think that's got to, you have to look at the facts of what the actual organizations are calling for. And you have to realize that military force is not, should not be the only or primary way to interact with the rest of the world. And at that point, groups that support diplomacy and multilateral arms control and, uh, you know, good faith economic interactions are certainly just as internationalist as the, uh, you know, the war hawks. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. I'm just hoping that, you know, we will see the necessary changes take place when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. That's my big issue here that I like to cover uh, at Parallax Views. And I want to thank you, William, for coming on Parallax Views to discuss these issues. How can my listeners keep up with the work you're doing and the work of others at the Center for International Policy? Well, our uh, website is internationalpolicy.org. Also, if people Google me, uh, William Hartung, they'll see my columns at Forbes, uh, things that I write for Tom Dispatch, which is a progressive website that gets posted all over the web. Um, and there's a lot of good groups like the Friends Command Natural Legislation, and Women Without War, uh, this group called Action Corps that does amazing grassroots works. So I think plugging into some of those networks is helpful and just knowing kind of what's happening in that kind of maze of legislative chaos in Washington and when it's useful to weigh in and how to weigh in. So, so there's various ways at it, but I, I think, um, you know, the more people that kind of act on their beliefs on this, the better. And thank you again, William Hartung, for coming on Parallax Views. Yes, thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Alan Leverett of the Arkansas Times and William Hartung of the Center for International Policy. As always, if you appreciate what I do here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is your support that keeps this show going, along with a few of our very, very, very much appreciated sponsors. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between on the Parallax Views Patreon page. Any amount of support will help, and of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shout-out, which means it's producer's credit shout-out time. 
So shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.